Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for friends of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candler, a Louisville Institute Fellow in Hebrew Bible at Columbia Theological Seminary. And I'm Paul Essan, a PhD student of Hebrew Bible at Yale University. Our co-hosts, Rachel Wren and Tim McNinch, are off this week. So Rosie, as you know the deal, that puts you in the hot seat for this fourth Sunday in Lent, March 10th, 2024. Our first reading from the OCL is taken from Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. And that looks pretty strange. What's this stuff about poisonous snakes? What have we got here in this text today? You noticed that, huh, Paul? <laughs> yes, we've got aggressive snakes in this reading from the book of Numbers. And it is definitely a strange Lenten reading on its own. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be here in the lectionary because it is paired with our gospel reading for this week, John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And our gospel pericope for Lent 4 begins with Jesus' reference to this strange incident during his conversation with Nicodemus. So, in an effort to draw an image for Nicodemus about the manner of his own death and its meaning, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the good folks who put the RCL together pulled this short episode from Numbers chapter 21 to help congregations understand what this is that Jesus is talking about in his conversation with Nicodemus. Okay, then that explains why it is here in the RCL, but I'm still not clear. What do we make of this story? What's the deal with the snakes? To be honest, I actually struggled a lot with, yeah, what are, what's going on with these snakes? So this passage from Numbers 21, I'll just say right at the start, it is strange, it's mysterious, and it's not very easy to understand, but I do think it's worth wrestling through. So even if you aren't planning on preaching the first reading directly, Jesus references this incident directly in the gospel. Mm -hmm. So why does Jesus talk about the bronze snake incident in the ancient history of Israel's wilderness journey in this conversation with Nicodemus? How does this image from Numbers help us reimagine the power of the cross, not only for those first Christians of the first centuries, but also today? So I'm going to try to provide some context first for our first reading, and then see if I can put some ideas out there for those looking to tackle this week's preaching task. Well, at the very least, we see some possibilities, right? There's something about the cross, there's something about the gospel, maybe... And then there's also this sort of big overarching theme around the snake motif, which is strangeness and mystery and confusion, which I think is part of the emotional affect sort of feeling that we have sometimes when we come to biblical text. I guess like confusion and strangeness is also like part of the reading experience. So I will be happy to accept that. <laughs> I'm glad we're going to just embrace that right at the start, that there, yeah, yes. part of this reading is going to be embracing the strangeness of this text, right? So let's just give a little bit of context, like what is happening in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. So first, the yep. story fits in a pattern of murmuring and death that is common to the book of Numbers. So this Indeed. is the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. We're in Bemidvar, also known as Numbers. Mm -hmm. And Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, describes an episode when the Israelites complain about the food and lack of water. Yep. So we recognize this theme in Numbers throughout 
This chapter begins with the Israelites fighting a battle against a Canaanite king who has taken some of their people as prisoner. And in retaliation, they put the city under a ban, Haram, and they utterly destroy it. They pick up their journey again after this battle, passing by the Red Sea, going around the land of Edom. And the text says that the nephesh of the people was discouraged, so katsar, because of the road. And that word katsar, it usually has to do with harvest, so end times. And there's an urgency here at the end of the growing season to reap. So that's why that word is there. And it's translated as maybe discouraged in the NRSV. But something is going on in that the soul, the spirit of the people is tired, Mm -hmm. discouraged, and there's a sense of maybe impatience and grief in this word. So again, with the sort of sense of, I'm not sure what's really going on, but they are feeling something about their path. Mm -hmm. And that's what becomes the context for speaking against God and Moses. So in a refrain that's familiar from the number of stories, the people say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread and no water, and our nephesh is sick of this bread. So again, with this word of spirit, soul, breath, they're just, they're sick of this food that they've gotten. The word used to describe this bread is haklochel lechem. So light, insubstantial, trifling bread. They're pointing to the idea it's not satisfying and their spirits are weary. Now they may be referring to the manna from heaven, which is perhaps what sets off the next terrifying event. Mm-hmm. God responds to the complaint by sending nachashim seraphim, so fiery or poisonous snakes that then bite and kill many of the people. The people are immediately contrite and they beg Moses for help. Moses prays to God on their behalf and God then instructs Moses to make a seraph, this image of the fiery serpent, put it on a pole and so that anyone that's bitten can look at it and stay alive. So Moses makes a nechash nekosheth, a bronze serpent, and it becomes this talisman that the people can look at and find healing when they're bitten from the snake. So this word nechash nekosheth also has some wordplay in it. So the words for bronze and snake sound alike in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And eventually this object becomes known simply as the nechusta. Strange story. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Paul. I don't know which one makes want to say anything about this. I don't know. It sounds like it's part of a sort of a problem-solving tool. Like, at least it's doing something for the people in this particular context. But I also wonder if it has something to do with testing. Like, just testing the people to see how worthy they are, but also how they are able to trust in God. So, yeah, there's just something that we have to say that it's, there's something that's going on with this image that is meant to give a sense of healing to the people. But maybe we could just talk about some of what happened in the ancient Near East. So there's multiple kind of things that we could talk about here. So the snake image might resemble an Egyptian cobra, right? So an upright winged snake that was imagined in a protective posture that's protecting the pharaoh. So it's not just an image from nowhere, but it's one that would have maybe had some symbolic meaning for the people. They may have seen this in Egypt. One of the means of protection that these snakes used was by spitting fire at enemies. The function of the seraph here appears to be apotropaic, meaning that it was a human-made object that's believed to have the power to turn away illness or sickness from a real-life counterpart. Mm -hmm. So this was not an uncommon belief among cultures in the ancient Near East. Even in 1 Samuel chapter 6, 
After the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, a lot of folks die, and they experience tumors and are plagued by mice. Yeah. So the Philistines, in order to stop the harm in 1 Samuel 6, we read that they send the Ark back with gold images of the tumors and the mice as a way of warding off the specific harm and making basically a guilt offering. So the symbols there are to try to, they're again, a human-made symbol that are meant to address a specific illness or sickness. And so we have maybe something similar that's going on here is that these symbols are being used to ward off um, in kind of a, yeah, I mean, I might as well just say it's commonly understood means of folk magic. So even to this day, there are cultures that ward off evil eye by using an image of an eye within a triangle. And also we might just think about blacksmithing, right? So just the idea that that Moses makes this image out of metal and the Mm -hmm. ability to take metal and form it into useful shapes, into weapons and Mm -hmm. tools was considered magical, maybe even to this day, right? It's a skill, but it's mysterious. How do you take Mm -hmm. a metal that seems hard, make it soft, and then Mm -hmm. change its shape. You're working in fire, you're producing objects of lasting value, Mm -hmm. and the knowledge of how to work with metals was associated with nomadic people like the Kenites, so the sons of Canaan and the sons of Cain. This was highly specialized, dangerous work that was passed down through families, information that was mysterious. And so all of this is going into what's happening with Moses developing this image of the serpent casting it in bronze, and then raising it up for people to look. Mm. There's something you said that made me think about scarecrows. I don't know if you know what scarecrows are. Like, Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like that thing that you put on a field when you're farming, maybe like cereal, millet, rice, whatever, just to discourage birds and sparrows from taking your harvest away. I don't know, but there's something about this snake thing that resonates that sort of image but i like the fact that you go back into the the historical background and then you pull out all these really interesting resonances from different cultures i think this do help us wrestle with the strangeness a little bit like we are not far off as foreigners anymore at least like we have some imagery from egypt and from all these other cultures that sort of resonate with this idea although i'm not too sure if like we've been able to help preachers clarify things as much. I And I'm sorry about that, but the, I do. I think, okay, so maybe if I, yes, let's go back to this. Yo, how can I help preachers here? So let me say that something about this process yes. of welding the image, of making something real, right? So to, uh, the fact is that these snakes are hurting the people, are killing the people, and they're imagining the poison as the feeling of fire. So that's why I would get this language of seraph in there. And so somehow by making this image into bronze, it took away its power to hurt mm-hmm. and transformed it into an image with the power to heal. Yeah. So I think if we can hold on to this, then we can maybe carry that into the story as Jesus references it with Nicodemus, mm-hmm. right? And if we're thinking about the preaching task and we're thinking about, yeah, what does this first reading help us to understand about the gospel? And we're remembering that we're in this period of Lent, mm-hmm. right? Nicodemus is having this conversation with Jesus that is completely confusing to him. It is baffling. He has come to him at night and it has started with this conversation of being born again. Nicodemus can't wrap his mind around how can a human being, an adult, be born again? Jesus doesn't help explain that. 
he then eventually gets to verse why we're starting to read verse 14 he says just as the son of man must be lifted up yeah he and that's what this bronze serpent is right yes so he's making nicodemus think about this image and just as it was lifted up this source of hurt and the source of pain the source of death so too the son of man must be lifted up in the same way he's thinking about the crucifixion now of course nicodemus has, has no idea doesn't understand but for the readers of john there was something healing about this, right? So one thing we have to remember is that the crucifixion remained a source of shame and was a stumbling block. This is the way Paul talks about it as well, right? The Apostle Paul mm-hmm. talks about the cross as a stumbling block. It was impossible for people to wrap their minds around a Messiah, a God that would be willing to be killed, tortured, publicly humiliated in this way. It was a death reserved for the worst criminals. Mm -hmm. And this is what Jesus, the son of man, is said to undergo. And this is the Jesus that this community is worshiping. Mm -hmm. If we can bring these images together in this period of Lent, here's what I would maybe offer preachers Mm -hmm. as a potential angle, which is there's a similarity here in the looking at something that has caused us pain, that is an embarrassment, that is a shame. And it is during this period of Lent that we've been invited to slow down, mm-hmm. to experience that, our frailty, our mortality, to look at the things that hurt. And here's where I think the invitation might be for preachers. Mm-hmm. As you think about this first reading from Numbers 21, I cannot take away the mystery. I cannot take away the strangeness. I cannot take away the inexplicability of mm-hmm. how this image works. Mm-hmm. I cannot do that with the crucifix either. I don't know anyone that can. It is at its root a mystery mm-hmm. at which we must gaze in helplessness, in our sickness, in our sinfulness, in our falling short in every way. Yet we look at this crucifix and somehow it holds our healing. Perhaps this is all we can do is hold these two images before our congregation and admit our helplessness, that we remain bitten by snakes. Yeah. We remain yeah. under the curse of death and sickness, and yet we trust yes. in this cross. Wow. <laughs> I like that. I like that because even as we approach Easter, we're going to be thinking about the cross, and we're going to be thinking about death and resurrection. And we will celebrate resurrection, but you know, we get to that point because of death, right? We are able to experience the transformation that comes after the death of Christ, so the thing that hurts us and the thing that makes us sick, it's transformed to bring life, to become the thing that makes us well. Yeah, and I think also one thing you're pointing to that I want to remind preachers about too is the fact that there's an enduring in the suffering, right? So the people that are looking at the serpent in the wilderness, the people that are looking at the cross both then and now are enduring suffering. So the communities around John are experiencing persecution and yet are clinging to this cross for their healing, right? So in that, there's like a mutual encouragement as we look back at the wilderness and think about that enduring of suffering and what we endure today, right? And so our suffering might look slightly different, but all of us experience suffering simply because we're alive, right? So maybe the invitation now is to acknowledge that and acknowledge that there is a suffering to life and there is a healing in 
paradoxical as that might seem, in enduring that suffering is our salvation. I like that, Rosie. Thank you so much, Rosie. I think that's a difficult text, but we got something really good out of it. And so thank you for your work on that. Thank you. Thanks, friends. We hope you also found something helpful out of the discussion today. Remember that you can find an episode on nearly every passage in the lectionary by using the search box on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Let us know what's helpful. Drop us an email, Facebook message, and we would love to hear from you. First Reading is produced by me, Rosie Kandathal, Tim McNinch, and Richard Wren. Until next time, my name is Paul Essa. And I'm Rosie Cannibal. Thanks for listening and happy preaching. <laughs>